Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, recorded Friday, March 10th. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. Later in this show, we're going to be catching up with Mike Caulfield, who's been a senior strategist in Haas and at Mercedes. We're going to get his take from being live on the ground in Bahrain, and we'll take a bit of a delve back to the last big regulation change, learn a little bit about the tyre challenges as well from a strategist point of view. Is Undercut still king? We'll find out. But first, we're going to do a little roundup of all the stories coming out of Formula One. Yes, we're not journalists from a fancy newspaper. We're more like F1inashed.com. But we think there's room for fan spaces in podcasting, a shared fan experience between you and me. And that's why we remain an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Joining me in my wrongness, as always, the wrongest of them all, Matt, two rumpets. Where there's a wind tunnel, there's a way. And Kyle power how's it going kyle very well cheers happy that formula one is back but is it the formula one we want oh we can get straight into that then what formula one do you want kyle power i want a nice close field with at least three top teams battling at the front that's what i'd like i know i'm asking for a unicorn but we've had it before and would nice be it would be very nice to have it again when did we last have three teams with a legitimate shot at the title 2010 so 20, 2012. Oh, so let's transport ourselves back to 2010 then. Who was who was in the running mat? 2010, we had um, Mercedes, kinda with uh, no. Who was who was in the running then? Well, hang on. Mercedes won races though, not Mercedes. 
McLaren. I'm thinking of Lewis Hamilton. So Lewis Hamilton won races in 2010, and then we had a legitimate fight between Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel. Didn't really know who was going to come out on top at that point. Also, um, Ferrari and Alonso were in the mix. Remember, that was Alonso, I think it was first season with Ferrari. He won the first race. And they were kind of in a mix. Also, 2012 was another season like that where we had three p- people potentially going into the final mm. rounds of three different manufacturers, which is McLaren, Red Bull, and uh, Ferrari again, going in with a genuine chance of winning the title. So it would be great to get back to those days. And I thought we were going to have it this year. Well, what conspired then in those years to give to give us such a close battle at the top? Was it stability of regulations? Uh 2010 was only the second year of the massive reg changes. So mm. I don't know why it came about in 2010. It just, um, there'd been stability in tires for quite a few years. But in 2012, was that, uh, yeah, they'd been stable in the regulations for a couple of years. It was the second season, I believe, of the Pirelli tires and they just hit a bit of a sweet spot. It was just one of these nice, um, nice occurrences where three teams tend to be genuinely fast. This happened again in 2003 when there was a tire war as well. And we ended up having Williams, McLaren and, uh, and uh, Ferrari at the front genuinely battling for the titles. So just to counter that then, Kyle, whilst that's all very nice, you've had to go back 20 years to give three examples. So it's not the norm in Formula One, is it? It's not like something radical and strange is happening last season and this season. No, I did say I was asking for a unicorn. (laughs) They do exist every now and then. So um, uh, yeah, I generally there's a lot of hype. Uh, we all thought we were going to get really a nice close up. Mercedes were going to nail their concept. Ferrari going to we're going to stop Ferrariing, and Red Bull weren't going to produce the beast of the car that they have. But it's only one race; it's not all over. But I was a bit disappointed with the gaps that I saw. Well, Matt, I don't think it's a massive surprise, is it? That second year of a big regulation change, and it's much the same as the first year. Red Bull dominant, Mercedes struggling to get their concept, and Ferrari. Ferrariing, sadly, as Kyle puts it. And, and let's just, in context of we're one race in, so we're, we're assuming that what we've seen is representative. Sorry, it's going to be like this to 2026. Is it nothing but disaster <laughs> all the way around? Now, I think Kyle brings up an interesting point. Uh, to me, the salient issue, especially in 2010, is that we had power units that were relatively on par with each other there were some discrepancies we did have if i'm remembering correctly uh, a pretty much a freeze on engine development at that point we were the tail end of the v8 era and therefore it really was just down to the aerodynamicist being in the ballpark and the difference between then and now to me is we switched essentially from uh We've gone to ground effect again, aerodynamics, which is a field that had lo- has long been abandoned. So there's a lot more room for teams to be very, very wrong without the data to tell them this. So if they're modeling or wind tunnel or CFD is off, they can, as Mercedes has, make very big mistakes, not realize it. And once you've made that mistake, it can take quite a while to come back. But... Isn't there too much of an emphasis on what's happening at the very top? So given that in the last 20 years, we're having to go back and really search like a needle in a haystack for those seasons where there's been multi-team, like three teams fighting at the top. Do we as Formula One viewers just put too much emphasis on what's going on at the very, very front? So as a, a Colchester United fan, 
I can tell you that I've had very, very little experience of watching Colchester United at the very top of, of any league. And why is there, there not much more enjoyment in the midfield? It seems like once one team is dominating or one car is dominating, people seem to write the season off. And that is the same whether it's Verstappen, whether it was Hamilton for years, Schumacher for years, Vettel for those two really dominant seasons. Why, why aren't people more satisfied to just kind of you know, enjoy that, enjoy the midfield battle. Modern Formula One, I genuinely think that everyone, and there, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of new fans come to the sports as well. And we were treated to 2001, which was 21, epic, 21 regardless. Yeah. Uh, two, yeah, sorry, 2021. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, which was absolutely epic. And I think once the bar is set that high, people just expect the same again and again. So I think this is where this sort of disappointment has come about. But you make a very good point of, you know, there's still some amazing fights. We saw some, I, I still thoroughly enjoyed the race and I will thoroughly yeah, enjoy the season. Yeah. I was just really hoping that we were going to get a real sort of a three-way fight. Two-way fights are great. One-way fights when you're in the same team with the Mercedes domination. At least you had sort of Rosberg and Hamilton for those couple of years battling at the front. We still had interest at the front. But if one team runs away of it, like the Schumacher years or the Vettel years, then people aren't really going to be that that interested but i think there's a lot of hope and after 21 i think everyone wants the same you know yeah. the same level of drama and it's and it's hard they're always looking for that for that first high you know when you go yeah. in it's like yeah you've got to wait <laughs> for almost, it yeah exactly it's almost like a drug and you can trying to get back to that first high and that's what everyone's craving at the moment i think so i think that's where all the disappointment comes in but i don't think it's panic stations just yet in the olden days when it was schumacher dominating and you were you're a schumacher fan kyle so for yep. you that was all good stuff but it was like 2001 till 2074 he won every championship in a row <laughs> so literally five championships in a row and it wasn't it wasn't like you know well uh, Verstappen winning one with with Hamilton right there it wasn't like Hamilton winning with the Ferraris all over them in in 17 and 18 it was like just domination he'd go out there and just lap the field and it was in the days before we had all the testing hype and as much journalism covering so you'd have no idea going into the first race who was going to come out with a good car? And you'd be like, come on, not Schumacher again, not Schumacher <laughs> again. And then he'd just look amazing and you'd go, ah, he's ruining, he's ruining everything. <laughs> um, so it, it does happen. But I wonder what psychological effect that has. Like, is Lewis Hamilton really as happy with 2020 and 2019 as he was with 2015 and 2014? You know what I mean? So I almost feel like there's certain titles, amount world championships you can bundle into one. So like you can you can kind of bundle Vettel's into one or two, like Hamilton's. You could bundle in like that the the Bottas years. You could bundle those championships together and the hybrid ones together. It's sort of it's almost a bit silly sometimes to say, oh well, Hamilton's seven times world champion, Schumacher uh, seven, and then Vettel. I mean, sorry, uh, Verstappen. How many is he going to collect by the end of the regulation set? How many has he got left to win before they change the rules? Another four. 23, 24, 25. So he's... Yeah, another four. So he'll be five-time world champion by the end of this regulation set. And it's kind of a bit silly because once you get on that conveyor belt of of dominating an era, you know, some of them are harder than others. Well, well, this is actually sort of an interesting thing because unlike these previous eras, uh, we have both restrictions in terms of aerodynamic development for the team at the top meant to be kind of a balancing counterweight to keep a team from getting away as they have done in the past with Red Bull and Mercedes and going further back with Ferrari. Um, and we don't really quite know how they're going to play out because this is only the second year 
that we've really seen them be an effect. So far, it hasn't worked in the way, entirely in the way, I think that the FIA mm. intended at the top of the field. But I think if we go back to the midfield a little bit, you can see that it's actually brought the teams, I think, closer together. I think it's just going to take longer to see that effect at the top because they have uh, the top teams had already spent over the decades yeah. money and staff developing advantages that, that aren't simply going to be eroded in a season or two. Uh, okay, so when you have to remember there's the aero development ballast that I suppose hasn't kicked in really a lot like you've got to do quite a bit to to undo like you said the baked in advantage of just being a good team having benefited from all that funding and unlimited development but actually in in this regulation set now uh, mercedes aren't used to operating within such a, a small budget so they're used to being able to kind of upgrade at will and the lack of the lack of upgrade budget might kind of stop seasons undoing themselves if that makes sense so like red bull were quite good in the in the last phase at developing throughout a season i kind of, I kind of guess like is there a danger that we're just we're stuck with an order once it sets in Kyle? yeah um i think there is a risk of that under the cost cap i mean this is all new for everybody yeah. so as you said before like well, not unlimited testing but they had much bigger budgets and they could be constantly running cfd simulations in the background now so there is a slight risk of a and a sort of unsavory kickback from these cost cap regulations is yeah you could prevent teams from catching up or or you know what catching up easily they will be able to catch up and of course they will naturally start to migrate towards each other i do not expect red bull to have the advantage that we saw at the first race by the end of the season i really do not expect that but it probably won't be a quick and easy fix so that is one little sour note that this cost cap does give it is harder and mm. harder to catch up but mercedes have been making noises that they i don't know well it depends which side of the <laughs> sort of uh, team you believe whether it's hamilton or toto wolf but we might have a mercedes b car at some point so they oh. might so they're already sounds like they're thinking of allocating a lot of their upgrade budget to just fixing the car again so we, we've got a mercedes segment coming up but i have to say kyle you've ruined my plan of news items to cover with that super interesting little diversion that you just did but it's quite nice to have a state of the nation uh, of, uh, of where we are within formula one well, I'd immediately like to pick a fight with that. It's going to be convenient to blame the cost cap. And I think you could make an argument for perhaps allocating it more like they do wind tunnel time, where if you're farther back, you get to spend extra money. And if you're further forward, you get more restricted. But you do have a problem with personnel. So I can understand why it's just a flat number. All the teams have to adhere to relative to the creativeness of their accountants. But I'm going to say that... Um, and I believe it was uh, Fred Visser talking in uh, Race Car Engineering, has made the point that the real sticking, this real problem here, is not so much the cost cap or the restrictions on testing. The real problem is the increase and increasing complexity of gardening leave, particularly for senior team members. And he talked about uh, someone they acquired. Um, it it might have even been Fallis he was talking about. Like, you acquired him. And it was almost, it's almost 15 months before that person makes an actual contribution to the team. And what that's done is slow down the transfer of technology amongst teams. Because you could pick off a junior, junior person who has a very tiny patch they're good at, 
But to get someone like Fallas, who not only has a really wide breadth in his area, which is aerodynamics, but is also high enough up to bring over knowledge from other departments, which is what allows the teams to catch up, it, it takes so long that we see these baked-in advantages for the teams not going away as fast as they really should be and would have in previous years where you didn't have this sort of thing going on. And it's quite interesting with the sort of the Fallis thing. So so remember, it was a couple of years ago, wasn't it, where there was a lot of big sort of power plays. So one from the Strolls at Aston and the other one from Red Bull poaching sort of engineers from other teams. So that's, that kind of two-year almost sort of grace period, gardening period has sort of ended now almost. And we're probably, these cars now starting to see the results. So, so we're saying that probably Aston Martin, you know, suddenly launching itself, propelling itself up the grid. Do you think that's a direct sort of result of Fallows finally managing to have an input in? In, into that car. Uh, yeah, I absolutely think that is the case. Red Bull are making, you know, their uh, sad attempt at jokes about it on the podium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is that the Aston is its own creation, but a lot of what makes it fast as it is and a lot of what is responsible for that jump would have come from Fallow's time at Red Bull. After all, you know, you can't, the, the knowledge that's in your brain can't be locked away separately when you move to a new team. And this is one of the reasons you see the teams, especially the top teams, trying to be more and more controlling with personnel who reach that level. Controlling personnel is one of the key skills of Ferrari. And the Queen of Hearts at Ferrari has struck again. That guard was supposed to paint the roses red. He planted white, which isn't right. The roses should be red. So off with his head, Matt. The chief aero guy has been sacked or resigned but he's gone yep he fell or he was pushed it's one of the two take your pick wow okay so the who's the gent in question i forgot um, his name this now. would be uh david sanchez right. i believe uh, okay yes Who- david sanchez but definitely right the timing is definitely a sacking timing isn't it it's not oh i've been working hard on this concept we've done one race i've i've successfully set it on its path and now i'm resigning that this is, I would need to be convinced that this is anything other than a, a a push. Maybe I think this. I mean, Ferrari. I think I've said this on this podcast before. They have they they have been known to have a guillotine style management system. When if it doesn't work, the guillotine comes out. Yeah, but they've got rid of that over the last couple of years. And apparently, when um when David Sanchez, well, when Charles Leclerc was told of David Sanchez was going to leave or he'd resigned, inverted commas, whichever way you think mm. that is, when he resigned, apparently he was really visibly a bit dejected and a bit oh. depressed. And I don't know whether he's thinking, I'm going to have to go and get the mop because we've got the guillotine out again <laughs> to clear up all the blood. Oh, or Kyle. or he's genuinely, or or he's genuinely like, this guy was good and I think he's resigned due to the pressure. So so I think Leclerc is a bit dejected and it's not great at Ferrari. We thought the you know, stability, we had... Team, they tried team principal stability that hasn't worked so they've changed that now they've got a new team principal and it looks like if he has been pushed then they're going back to their old guillotine style ways uh, well it's interesting because he's responsible for the current car that's on track um and he reportedly was a key member of Bonato's staff so it wouldn't surprise me at all that this is just sort of a continuation of the Bonato purge. And and it may well have been when Bonato himself went, Sanchez started looking for the exits just as a self-protective move. But what's also going to be interesting is where exactly he winds up. Well, yeah. So before we get to that, where it is, what I think, 
I think he, there is a good chance he could have genuinely resigned here. Like Ferrari is sort of well known as being one of the biggest sort of pressure cookers in the pit lane. And you have the Tafosi and the Italian press can be quite vicious. So Sanchez might have been feeling the heat. And when the car hit the track and it didn't blow everyone away, he's probably could have been thinking, you know what? I can't be dealing with this anymore. I've tried my best and I'm just going to get shot down. So I will, I will make this easy for everyone and just walk. Uh, but in in the olden days, I would have said like Ferrari fans used to be people that I would butt heads with far more often. But these days, they just they're like they're like Liverpool fans a few years ago before they started getting successful again. They just kind of they were just browbeaten and accepting. But if it's still like that in the management, that's one thing. Plus, if you read the Italian press, they're very they're very very hard on 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 Ferrari. In the same way that, like, the British press used to just absolutely murder the England football team. So there was a picture of, like, Graham Taylor on the front page of The Sun. And he was, like, his head was morphed into the head of a turnip. And and that was, like, that was front page news. So, yeah, it was a poison chalice being England manager. So whether that that guillotine-style management that you're talking about there, Kyle, thanks for that imagery, by the way. Whether that comes from within the team or from pressures, say, from like the board, from Ferrari themselves, or the Italian press. That's interesting. But whether or not he resigned, whether or not he was encouraged to leave, like me in higher education, that's still not good to lose someone so senior at the very start of the season. Matt? Uh, yeah, it's not good. And as I was just very recently pointing out, one of your problems is any senior person that you happen to be able to acquire from another team is going to take an awful long time to show up and have an impact. Uh, But also, I mean, Bahrain is particularly an unrepresentative track. And so this car that was around, I don't know, three quarters of a second off in Bahrain, you might see in Jeddah being very, very close to the pace of the Red Bull. Indeed, Ferrari now has a straight line speed advantage. And some analysis of the cornering shows that unlike Mercedes, which has a real, I think, downforce problem, uh, Ferrari doesn't necessarily suffer from that same particular problem. The other thing to realize is that their new rear wing, the single pillar rear wing they were working on, isn't quite ready for prime time. And that may have exacerbated uh, Ferrari's issues with rear tire degradation because they would have been losing some downforces. The, the, one of the main purposes of that single, single pillar is to try and help get better airflow onto the rear wing, which then would generate a little extra helping downforce to maintain those rear tires. All right. I didn't follow any of that last bit, the techie bit. I didn't enjoy that as much as I enjoyed the bit about the gardening leave and the politics of having to get people in the transfer of tech. I enjoyed that. But the whole downforce thing got got a bit lost, if I'm honest, Matt. Uh, do you want me to try again? No, 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 no. Instead, <laughs> and look, I know I know there's going to be a lot of tech in. I'm only kidding. I bet I could do it better the second time. <laughs> there's, I know there's a lot of, um, of, of tech things to talk about next. And I think I want to end before we go to the Mike Caulfield sec- segment. Uh, I do want to end rolling back to... Uh, Mercedes, but you have some clues as to why McLaren was struggling. Who wants to, who wants to run with that? Matthew. Well, this is along the lines of what we've been discussing. Um, 
if you recall, there was a bit of a regulation change, not a massive one. They raised the throat 10 millimeters and raised the floor edge 15 millimeters. But as McLaren have discovered, much to their dismay, certain floor geometries, that would be the fiddly bit shape on the edges, um, don't work as well at the higher ride, at the higher floor edge height. And they really got caught out. They didn't think it would be a big adjustment. Turned out to be a big adjustment. Long story short, uh, it took them till September to realize they needed to change course. And that's why they weren't essentially ready for the start of the season. And we're not going to see their update till I think Baku. That's going to be their car that they intended to build. And um, they have said that had they found this about a month earlier, you would never have heard about this issue. But just it's just a timing and production thing could this sort of be remedied by maybe a new head of aerodynamics coming from <laughs> another team uh, is that okay like, sanchez is that what you, but but San- yeah maybe <laughs> so matt was telling me sanchez came from mclaren in the first place though uh correct he was there from i think 2007 to 2012 which uh. overlaps with a certain championship season i can recall so carl was this what you were alluding to earlier this is the, the rumor and gossip that you were going to start spreading uh no <laughs> i think it's kind of well known that i think sanchez is maybe he was heading to a british team which uh, right. which, which could be one of seven colored in orange i right. think is quite expected but if he was at mclaren from 2007 to 2012 that was their last successful period really so so that can't be a yeah. bad thing maybe maybe he just works in the environment there maybe it works for him as long as you don't get people that were working on the the engine department in 2012 I think, that's, I think you were all right. That was it. That was it. 2012, wasn't it? They had about 85 engines, engine uh, failures. The box pit right? stops. Box yes. pit stops. They had, they broke down in Singapore. Is it, it was a Singapore Grand Prix where Lewis Hamilton basically broke down, got out of the car, marched straight to Nicky Lauda, got signed for Mercedes. And that was it. Job done. I'm moving to Mercedes. And so the rumors go. Yeah. <laughs> Matt. Well, and I have some, if you were a McLaren fan, it, it was a pretty dreadful outing. Mm-hmm. I think the car isn't as bad as their results at this particular race. But the good news is their wind tunnel, which is a big deal for them, is actually finished. And they're on to the installation of equipment and correlation expected to be up and running in June. And that is in many ways going to be a bigger deal than probably a lot of people realize. So there, there is some silver lining on the horizon if you're a McLaren fan right now. Okay, that's far on the horizon, though. So that you're talking then next season or the season after, because the wind tunnel is going to co- correlate straight away. Oh, for upgrades. Exactly. Okay. For development, they no longer have to ship everything to Cologne, Germany to test it. They can just walk down the hall and chuck it in there, as long as they've got the time left under there. Okay, restrictions, let's, of course. Let's quickly take a, a trip to... I wanted to say Viri, but that it was Viri is Renault's engine manufacturing base, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's but, correct. But Alpine is still based at Enstone. Yep. So Alpine was Renault, and Renault was who was who was the Renault outfit before that? Lotus. 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 Yeah, that was um, yeah, yeah, that was Matthew Carter's Lotus, and uh, I think that's as far back as we as we need to go. Uh, but so the Enstone outfit, Matt, again in a very similar position to to Alpine. And I think first and foremost, actually, Kyle, we'll go to you here, because I, I know like, we've been following Gasly's career and you go, oh, you poor, you poor dear. 
oh, you just want to give him a bit of a hug, don't you? Because he's gone <laughs> from bottom of the midfield mediocrity finally to a works team, and it feels like it's nowhere. Yeah, um, they were apparently really bullish all through testing. There was a lot yeah. of confidence coming out of them, and yep. and we're not right. They're going to turn up the engine, and they're going to take some fuel out, and they're finally going to start going quick. But it never really happened. The car looks stiff all the way throughout. But one thing, which actually he was my driver of the race, actually in the first race, Gasly went from dead last to ninth, and I believe with a bit of a mishap on the way. Um, so actually he put in a really stunning drive. Actually, so it was a really strong start. But yeah, I get what you're saying. He yeah, he was like, finally, I've got it. All French team. This is the dream team of my dream job. And it starts on the back of the grid. It's not, it's not ideal, is it? But also Alpha Tauri didn't exactly have a stellar, a stellar race either. So it's not like he's going to be looking, you know, looking at back at his ex-girlfriend thinking, well, what have I done? You know, I think it's not entirely like that, but, but yeah, it was a shame. It would have been nice to see Alpine a bit further up, but works team, I'd expect to see them pumping some really strong performances from the mid season onwards. Yeah, and like you can look back and and kind of go, oh, was that the right decision? And then you remember that she chucked all the items from your kitchen out into the street from the second floor. But uh, Matt, I, they did have a few tussles with uh, with the Alpha Tauris on the way through. I know you had a Gasly had a good fight with Sonoda. You'd still probably say medium term, it's still a good move, isn't it? it you, he's not going to start panicking and looking for an out in his contract. No, no. It, it, in fact, if we remove the outlier of Aston's upgrade in performance, I think Alpine start more or less where they finished last season, which is solidly fourth in the constructors. And certainly if we look at the performance relative to Ferrari or Mercedes, they they may have actually gained a little bit on them. Red Bull, however... And and Aston has sort of upset that for most people. But it's a works team. They had a very strong development cycle last season. They're very happy with the upgrades. And the other thing, and I've made this point before to realize, is that they redesigned the entire rear end. They went from, I think, pull rod to push rod suspension. So there's a lot of new stuff there for them to dial in with setup. I don't think we've seen the absolute maximum extracted from the current car Never mind what they bring to it with development. All right, pause. Spanners, pause. When you say things that I don't understand. So I've actually, confession, I've heard for like the last eight years, how long have we been podcasting together? <laughs> Nearly nine years. I know, it's <laughs> getting to that point where I'm starting to be embarrassed to tell people exactly how long it is. 2014 was the first season you and I were podcasting on Formula One. And I've heard you say pull rod and push rod suspension in that time thousands of times. And I don't know the difference or why I should care. So why don't you two break that down for me a little bit, just in, in a few minutes? Well, you're going to hate to hear this, but in a pull rod suspension, when the wheel is struck and has to deal with the force, it pulls on the rod that's attached to the damper. And in a push rod suspension, when the wheel is struck and has to deal with the force, it pushes on the rod that's attached to okay. the damper. And Okay, that is literally one of the major differences. Actually, no, that make that makes that makes sense because necess not necessarily in my mind or the listener's mind are these things passive. So they, you know, you used to have active suspension, but of course this is all passive suspension. So this is basically the way in which the road through the wheel and the suspension arms interacts with the the dampening system. So actually, that's not as stupid and simplistic an explanation as you thought it was going to be, Kyle. Um, and also, why they changed changed these 
sort of um these arrangements from push and pull rod it's got nothing really to do with the ride or the actual suspension itself it's purely mainly an error aerodynamic reason so so if you think you've got to you, you've got a wheel that's going to to put an action on a damper um it, in in suspension if it's a if it's a push rod you need the suspension going the diagonal line from the bottom of the wheel to the top of the chassis so when the wheel moves up it pushes on the bar if it's a pull rod you basically flip the diagonal so you've got a diagonal bar going the other way so when it goes up, it pulls on it. So basically, it's just flipping diagonal bars. <laughs> it's going whichever way you want to suit your aerodynamic preference. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. So like, it's like, oh, it's much of a muchness, but it can affect which way you want to cut through the error. Yeah. Huh. I learned a thing. Um, <laughs> there are other differences as well. Uh, it's easier to adjust push rod setups. Oh. relative to pull rods because of where the because of where the entry to the chassis is is located to where it essentially attaches to to your dampers and there's some other minor suspension differences second order lever stuff and things like that but on the whole they op and, and there might be a little weight advantage to push rod pull rod i can't remember one of them has maybe pull. a slight weight advantage but, but we're getting high. into very hmm. much smaller margins the biggest difference, as Kyle has pointed out, will be aerodynamic in terms of where and how the team is trying to get the air to go, both at the front of the car and at the back of the car. Oh, no. With that new information, that's pushed out other information from my brain. I've forgotten now how to emotionally connect with my children. But at least I understand <laughs> the difference between pull and push rod suspension. So let's circle back round to um, Mercedes. Haven't got as much time as I hoped we would on this because we do want to make sure we, we hear from Mike Caulfield. But basically, the Mercedes no-blame culture has immediately failed to survive contact with the enemy. Toto Wolff is blaming everyone but himself. Lewis Hamilton says the team didn't listen to him on the direction of the car. And the I think the general feeling we're getting from the tech side is almost like, a, oh, it's, it's fine, it's fine, we're getting there, we're getting there. Who's telling the truth? Who's correct, Kyle? Um, I don't know. And it's quite, it seems quite disjointed. I'm amazed that it's so bad. Yeah. 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 They're all making statements. I'm really quite disappointed in the statements that have come out, to be honest, like sort sort, sort of Toto's basically just just said it, it doom, you know, there's a three horseman outside. Wolf smash. (laughs) You know, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all gone. It's all gone wrong. Basically, Lewis was really positive at the the start, but now he said the team didn't listen to me. And it's, it sounds like he's had a, a pot shot at the team in the press, which doesn't really help anything. And then Wolf said, no, we are all united. And then George Russell said, well, Red Bull are going to win every race. It is not, not none of it is positive, is it? <laughs> and it's all slightly negative in a slightly different way, which is, which is, which is a bit sort of bamboozling, really. Like, I'm really surprised they haven't just kept their heads down and said, okay, we're going to keep working on it. They basically said, we've made a, a horrible, we've made a Ferrari S ball drop, but on the technical side and, and, and we're screwed, basically, and we're going to try really hard to fix it, and we might have to write off the season, which I'm really surprised they have come out so negative so early. Did you mention balls every appearance? Are you on a I dare? Was to... I tried you were to hovering over the button, weren't you? <laughs> Trumpets. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Kyle. I, I'm surprised that the official team attitude of Mercedes is so downbeat. And I mean, I, I, I don't know if the word hysterical is in use anymore, but I'm just astonished for a team that prides itself on engineering to what is a very, very emotional response mm. to simply 
not being where they expect it to be. Mercedes' usual response is, we'll work the problem, we'll get there. We've solved all sorts of complicated problems before. We acknowledge this isn't an optimum outcome, but we are working towards a solution. And even if that solution is, we feel we need to change aerodynamic horses midstream, that, that's what you would expect from them. How much more expensive do we think it would be to like come out with a like a, just a completely different chassis concept versus the upgrade program? So what what's the penalty? Does it cost more money, or does it mean that your your concept is now at zero upgrades, whereas before your concept would have been at you know zero plus one upgrades, which is one upgrades? But what's the penalty for just going right? Scrap it. Uh, the penalty is increased. Um increased uncompetitiveness until the new concept hits the track and hopefully is uh, validates the numbers you developed in um, the design phase. Yeah, so there's different sort of theories around this and it seems like there's different ways of thinking coming from within Mercedes itself. So 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 what George Russell I think and what other people are calling for is just scrap this year, use this year and use all of our upgrade tokens. So to answer Spanner's question, you know, how much does it cost? If they stuck with this concept, they can probably bring two to three big upgrades. Or if they change the concept, they can change the concept, start with zero and probably have no upgrades for it, but they set themselves up better for next year as a platform. So Oof. I think half of Mercedes are maybe saying that we need to completely change, ditch this concept and and basically use this year as a change concept to try to wriggle out the, the wrinkles in it and then it'll put us on a better base to start next year. Or the other half of the camp is saying, let's carry on with this concept and let's carry on developing it and it might work. So, so yeah, so they could either write it off have no upgrades and sort themselves out for next year, or they can try and plow on and save some grace this year and then leave themselves maybe slightly com- compromised if they do genuinely believe that this, that this concept has hit a dead end. And the noises Toto Wolf is making sounds like this concept has hit a dead end in his eyes. They're two rubbish choices, really, though, aren't they? <laughs> you wouldn't pick either, oh, yeah, but that's where you are. Yeah. Well, it's very Highlander. There can be only one under the cost cap, says Total Wolf. And and I suspect he is right. Mercedes already has an upgrade coming at Imola, a fairly big one that might gain them back more performance. And I do need to point out here, one of the reasons for my confusion about all of this is if you look at Mercedes' position now compared to last season, they're actually in a lot better place. They have a car that works. They have a car that met their targets. Now, why their targets that made them happy were so much off of, say, Red Bulls or Astons is perhaps a different question to be asked, and I've seen it asked on Twitter before. But the fact of the matter is they brought a car that met their targets. They have already a big upgrade plan to gain performance. It seems much more in a wheelhouse where setup can be optimized, developments can be brought. And if they're looking at that long path and saying, we still don't think this is the one, that's also not a surprise. This is only year two. So the the statement from Wolf about the upgrade was, well, it, well, three-tenths won't be enough. So, so we can assume that they think their upgrade package was going to be three-tenths. Obviously, other people will upgrade. But if you look at the 0.6 off they were in qualifying, he said both drivers didn't nail that lap. They didn't go out for a second run. And Lewis Hamilton was complaining that on the setup, they took out loads of front end, basically. So... He was compl- that's why he was getting understeer and, and tire wear in the race. So they didn't get the setup right. They didn't tactically utilize the second run in qualifying and they didn't nail the qualifying laps. So maybe that three tenths upgrade, that might be significant. Absolutely. It wasn't, 
Yeah, it wasn't an unmitigated disaster, was it? The yeah. way they've been talking, <laughs> yeah, you haven't exactly. seen the race. Yeah. Oh my god, they've yeah. finished like fifteenth and sixteenth, yeah. and they had nothing left. So this is why I'm really surprised, and this is why also I'm struggling to take it at face value. I'm taking it with a large pinch of salt of what they're saying, and I think they might be positioning themselves, but I don't. I'm really disappointed at how they've acted about it. But as you say, they they're not bouncing. The pace difference at the start from last year was roughly similar. Remember, there wasn't a safety car during the Bahrain race either. So that's why they said that they're saying they're 50 seconds behind Red Bull. Well, yeah. they may well have ended up 50 seconds behind Red Bull last year as well. But there was a safety car which closes all the field up. Field up. So they've just had a natural field progression, which we've not seen for a long time in Formula One, to be honest. There's usually a safety car. Um so, yeah, I just, doesn't actually look as bad as they are making out. But mm. there was lots of rumours before testing started that Mercedes apparently had done a sudden U-turn in a bit of their concept and they were struggling to manufacturing parts in time. And now, now these are unsubstantiated sort of rumours, but there was a lot of this going around. And now Mercedes coming out and saying that half of the camp thinks that they've got the concept wrong. This kind of adds some weight to those rumours. So maybe they did have a, you know, they, they got halfway through their development cycle and they're starting to make the parts and think, hang on a minute, mm. oh, we've gone up a cul-de-sac here. We're in a dead end. Um, we might, we might have to change it, but I feel a bit sorry. Is it Mike Elliott? Who I think is kind of becoming yeah, a bit getting, of a scapegoat yes. for it. Yeah. And yeah. how this usually works, as you will know, Span, as an engineering, yeah. you've got designers yeah. and engineers can be very, can be very, um, can be very protective of their train sets. So this is, so this concept oh. might be his train set that he's saying, this is my train set and it's going to work. Believe it, believe it, believe it. And it might be to the point where he's going to get bullied out of it. And they have to reverse out of yeah. it. It's clearly some people say, do you still have faith in this concept? Mm. Obviously, it wouldn't have got this far. My, so, my, yeah. My job in engineering was was the will it survive contact with reality test. And and sometimes mm. you really did have to wrestle and pry design concepts out of designers' hands when they've spent years on it and they, they absolutely believe it. Uh, but that's all the time we have. Make sure you follow Kyle Power uh, or his links in the show notes below. And the person who puts those links in the show notes below is Matt Two Rumpets. Go and follow him as well. Uh, me and Matt earlier in the week called, uh, caught up with F1 strategist Mike Caulfield, who used to work for Haas and Mercedes. And he gave us a an, an insight into Formula One and into the start of the season that we couldn't possibly dream of. So please enjoy this interview. He's a really nice guy. And I say goodbye at the end of the interview. So I don't need to say anything else here, but we will see you next on Sunday for our race review. I think we'll be live at 8 p.m. on YouTube, but the podcast will be ready for your Monday morning commute. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We might be wrong, but we're first. And the reason we're wrong is because we really, we're just fans, aren't we, Matt? Ah, uh, yes, we are just fans. And who needs correlation? That's for little kids. Yeah, who needs experts? Well, we do sometimes because we like to bring on people who have that intimate knowledge of Formula One so that we can talk to you with just a tiny bit of borrowed authority. So today, Matt and I are joined by an experienced strategy engineer with a demonstrated history of working in the motorsport industry. He is the ex-strategist for Mercedes and Haas and friend of Missed Apex podcast, joining us from parts unknown, it's Mike Caulfield. Hey, Mike. Hey, nice to be on again. Uh, Mike Caulfield, if you're not familiar, has been a a strategist at at both ends of the grid, Mike, and uh, and you're in Bahrain at the moment. Yeah, both ends in the middle, pretty much featured everywhere in there. (laughs) So I've got the broad spectrum of what you need to do in that that area. So what was the atmosphere feel like? Obviously, everyone excited and buzzing for that first race. But I I know very little about Bahrain, believe it or not. My day-to-day commute doesn't take me towards that circuit. Uh, What was it like out there? Yeah, it was it was interesting actually. It was um I kind of felt after testing every everyone was a little bit calm. Obviously behind the scenes they probably weren't, but out in the open it it was the paddock was actually yeah, relatively I don't know, it was it was it was a bit eerie in in a sense, but like everyone seemed kind of relaxed and chilled and just ready to go. I don't know if it's the case of obviously had a bit of a longer winter break than this year than than we've had in the last couple of seasons, so it just meant everyone was ready and everyone had a little bit more time for preparation and just actually eager to get going. Um, but yeah, it was the, obviously that usual buzz, chat to a few people I knew and everyone was kind of, again, that prolonged break, actually they were ready to get back into it and mm. not dreading the season ahead just yet. So I wonder if though the the very short testing, because there was only three days of testing where there's normally like a couple of stabs at it. Did some of the teams, do you sense, tip turn up thinking of Friday as kind of almost an extension of the testing? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Um, I mean, you obviously only have two hours on a Friday, and you still got to do your work for the for the race itself. So, so you just it's a continuation of of pretty much what you've learned. So maybe it's just you've got any slight unknowns which you picked up on testing um, on on your tires or on maybe your high fuel pace or your low fuel pace. You just want to maybe just get that little bit more information on it. But really, looking at the run programs, most people did. I think most people stuck to what they normally would do on a on a Friday anyway. So it's just, yeah, just finalising that little bit of work, which um, they did during during the winter testing a, a week before. Uh, yeah, so, so, so some teams did seem more prepared than others. And it was, um, I think, quite clear looking around the paddock that, that certain teams had turned up with no concept or a concept that they instantly got rid of. But we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. I think, Matt, I think we want to sort of focus on on the race one challenges, perhaps from a team point of view, but also uh, digging into Mike's uh, intimate strategy knowledge. Uh, well, yeah. And I, I think one of the first and biggest questions I had is, is now we had testing at the same track where we were racing, but the race is the first time the teams really sort of went all out. So from a strategy point of view, like how many surprises are you looking at on race day? Um, compared to the knowledge you gain from testing like how much if race one is really just oh we're still kind of learning some stuff about this car and oopsies who <laughs> knew the tires would go 10 laps less than we thought they would um 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, having that test a week before um, gives you that little bit more information. And Bahrain now has become testing, I think, the last three seasons, is it? We've done testing, mm. pre-season testing before going into the first race there. Um, so, you know, it's not just the continuation of this year. You can look at previous years of what, what's it been like going from testing into the race. So you look at that historic information and you can kind of see, right, well, this is kind of what we saw, the degradation of the tyres in testing. How did that correlate in the race? And you start using that information going forward. So I think probably going into this weekend's race, there was obviously some still some unknowns in terms of competitive order and and obviously, again, what the tyres exactly were going to do in that situation. Um, but it's it's probably the most prepared teams are going to be for a race other than maybe knowing exactly where they stand than for the rest of the season, obviously, where you turn up now for the rest of the tracks of the year without having done a week's worth of testing before turning up on that on that Friday. So yeah, there's a, there's always a few surprises, but as a strategist, there's there's some surprises every weekend as well. So you've always got to try and counter what they may or may not be. Yeah, it's worth remembering that Bar- uh, Spain was traditionally the testing ground. So you would have done a lot of testing sessions in Spain and Jerez as well, also in Spain. So Barcelona and Jerez. And they would have been significantly cooler testing conditions than than Bahrain. So, like, which one did you prefer as a, a a testing bed for the season going forward? Obviously, Bahrain is very representative of the Bahrain Grand Prix. Uh, but with Spain, did that give you more of an indication, more different types of corners? Uh, so yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Like, because like you said, though, Barcelona in February is very unrepresentative. So, and the main thing from kind of a strategist point of view is you're trying to get this information on the tyres and what they're going to do. And actually the tyres in Barcelona are going to be, oh, Barcelona winter testing, uh, really unrepresentative of what you see for the rest of the year, um, just because you've very rarely run in, in that kind of 17, 18 degree track, uh, not track temp, air temp, which you kind of is the match you get in Barcelona. And so from a car performance point of view, yeah, it's Barcelona's a, a relatively good place to test because it has all those factors. It has the obviously different kind of types of corners. But from a strategy point of view, you always went into Barcelona testing knowing, but when you got to the race in May, the tires would behave very differently. Mm. And you also had to do a lot of kind of um, ifs and buts of, of, well, this tire does this in winter. And so again, you're looking back at historic and going, right, how does that translate going forward? So a lot of the things you saw in the, in the kind of winter testing in Barcelona, yeah, you just knew we're, we're not going to apply to pretty much any racetrack you came to in terms of tyres and strategy anyway. And so I'm going to stray into Trumpet's territory here, Matt, because you did a nice breakdown on, on Twitter of the new tyres. And I have to admit, that passed me by completely. And then you got a quote tweet and a retweet from none other than ex-strategist Mike Caulfield. So I think I'm going to rely on you two to kind of give me a, a little bit of a, a rundown of what's going on in the tyres and what the the changes were. Matt, kick us off. What was the the big changes for this season? Well, I think there were two big changes. First is we had a brand new tyre in the series, the the C1, which the teams hadn't seen before and is on the harder end. And then we also had a new construction of front tyre. And so I I think the question, the first and obvious question is, how hard is it to take a new tyre in the series? And as a strategist in a team, and then subsequently, how much does something like, oh, well, we have some brand new construction on the front tires. 
how much does that change or affect your job as a strategist? Like, how does that change what you're able to do? Yeah, so so usually, so Prelly obviously do a lot of their testing for the next season's tires from the previous year. So every team gets the option to do a day or two days of kind of Prelly tire testing. You don't know what they're running. They can bring a variety of compounds. So you don't know if that's going to be what they choose, what it is, what the construction is or anything. So they're, they're all blind tests and the information gets shared purely across um, across the rest of the teams. And then Abu Dhabi post-test is when you will actually run for the first time what the next year's tyres are going to be. So you start getting your information from the Abu Dhabi test. Um, however, they're still, they won't tell you exactly what the changes are at that point. Um, so, and also, again, they won't confirm this or not, but it's a, but it's a chance of, um, there's a chance in that tyre test, but actually you're still running the 2022 tyres and you're a control group and someone else is running the 2023 tyres, for example. And you're, you're not sure which ones you've got. You're not told that. You're never oh, told that. You never right. found out. Um, so you look at that and you kind of find, well, why is my degradation worse than theirs? Or why is my degradation better than theirs? And you can kind of start maybe guessing afterwards, but you also might be something relative to your car, which causes that. So you, you can never be hundred percent sure. So obviously when you get to Bahrain, oh, the first test for now Bahrain, this is the first time you obviously run them in anger. And then with a bit being Bahrain, it's the first time it's running a representative condition as well for the first race. So you stand, start understanding what they're doing so you again go back again a third time i mentioned it but you look at historical data you look at how does that compound so obviously when you get a brand new compound whatsoever that's a whole new that's a whole new ball game so right what's that going to do if there's a brand new construction on the front right let's have a look you get the feedback from the drivers in terms of the kind of performance if it's more understeery oversteery mm. um it, from that aspect of it but then you'll start comparing it going, okay, we know last year's C3 did this. What's this year's C3 doing? Okay, the performance isn't too different. Um, what's the delta between the tyres? And you start looking at, um, you compare last year's to this year and see how much difference it is um, based on that. And you start building up a good, uh, a, a general picture of what that new construction's done, if it's changed a huge amount and in what aspects as well. So probably have muted for a few years in terms of they want to make a tyre where you can push. And it doesn't overheat, and you can just allow the drivers to push, but they still want it to the grade. So, again, is that a kind of is that a name they've tried to go for this year? The teams aren't told really what the what their ideas behind their changing constructions are. We've got to kind of figure that out themselves. Um, yeah. So that's that's the main things you look at, and you try and just build that picture up of how 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 the changes have affected the cars and what you do in terms of the strategy. So just looking historically at what Pirelli have done with the compound, so they've. Pirelli could obviously make a tyre that could last all race. That is well within their capabilities. They are going to a, a spec and a set of uh, requirements. But I, am I imagining it that they did? They had a type of tyre early on where it was fairly consistent and then it would just suddenly drop off a cliff. So you would see drivers almost mid-lap suddenly have just got no grip and, and they would have to disappear and into the pits, but they would drop down the grid. And so people were waiting for them to drop off a cliff. Is the aim now to have degradation that kind of where the lap times just gently increase throughout the stint? No, so so in that has always been the aim, and that was always the target set by I think F1 itself. So if they wanted that kind of idea that you'd have a fairly consistent tire, and then it would just hit the end. That's what so they want. All oh, right, that, that, that's what they kind of wanted, and that's always kind of been in the target letter. But what they found with that was that 
people then just started managing it because the management, the way they built the tire, if you managed it, it just extended it. So uh. you then they were like saying this tire will do 20 laps, but the teams then found out, well, if we manage it by going a second off the pace at the beginning, we can actually get 35 laps out of this. So mm-hmm. and then and then you wouldn't get that kind of drop off. And it was they figured um, it out. And they, yeah, they just figured it out. So the next one they wanted to do was to try and produce a tire where you could push flat out or not push. And it'd still have that drop off at the same point. Not quite sure they've figured that out yet uh, in in terms of what they want to do, you know, whether they've got that. So, well, they haven't got that. So yeah. so now they've kind of again, Bahrain's a very different circuit. It's always been a higher degradation one based on the the track surface. Um, but based on what we saw this week oh, in testing and this weekend, the C one potentially looks now a little bit higher degradation than what we saw last season. Wait, wait, so C1 is the new super hard one? No, other way around. Why is it so confusing? Uh, so so this is, uh, I mean, this is this is actually where the big story comes in and from what the teams have told us. And obviously, the C0 was last year's C1. So the C last year's C1 is still around in the C0, and that's supposed to be the hardest compound. Right, okay, okay. And they're supposed to have slotted in a C1, which obviously fits between the C0 and C2. From what basically looking at all the data from testing and the race and chatting to the teams, they actually are ranking this as more of a C2.5, the new C1. So it's it's quicker than the C2. It degrades more than the C2. Um, so basically it kind of um, is, yeah, it's, it's about, it's a, it's, it doesn't appear harder than, than a C2. Tire. Okay. I'm going to nod along and then go look up the, the tire compounds. Uh, before we get back to, I know Matt's train of thought and Bill has, has a great question. I think the question a, a lot of a fan, newer fans, not me, I know it, of course I do, uh, is what, what game is Ferrari, uh, is Pirelli trying to create? What game is F1 trying to create with these tires, with these compounds? What are they looking for? One stop, two stop, like what, what are they trying to achieve? Because you could have Formula E style, all weather, last however long you want tyres. I, I think the the aim, and the, and the teams agree with this. I think the teams are on board of it, and Pirelli are on board of it. The aim is they want a mix between one and two stop races, as in not like a two stop race is close to a kind of a one stop. And then you, I think um, Matt kind of touched on it in his tweet that. It's an idea of uh, someone will do a one-stop but has to do a bit of management where someone will do a two-stop and can push those tyres that bit more. And then they start to come towards the end, towards the end, together Together, towards the end, sorry, and then start interacting and you're getting that kind of battle towards the end. Will he catch him? Won't he catch him? And it adds a little bit of an element in there. And then then that brings in that engineering aspect of, right, how good are we looking after our tyres? And then you can say... For example, a car like a Red Bull looks really good on its tyres this year, which isn't great for the rest of us, but um, it's, that, that's what it is. They they look really good on their tyres. But then another team which might struggle with DEG, no matter what they do in terms of management, go, right, well, it makes no sense for us to manage because we're still going to have bad DEG, so let's push it. We'll have an extra stop in, but at least we'll push the tyres. And then you start kind of bringing those strategies together in that respect. Right, well... I would like to know, and one of our listeners would like to know a little bit more about this. Uh, I am Bill Ask. I'm curious to hear more about why the medium tire was so disliked. Mm. Now, I, th- I think you've already sort of touched on it. But am I understanding your thinking or the team's thinking is more that Pirelli's new tire is, is simply in the wrong place in the numerical order? Yeah, that, that's at least from Bahrain. That's the kind of impression it gives. I mean, and Bahrain, yeah, I'll just state this: it might not be 
overall. But if you do actually go and have a, one of your tire guys and looks at the actual tire stiffness metrics, it might come out and it is perfectly in line. Um, but Bahrain has often been a place like a couple of years ago where where it was hard, medium, and soft, and the hard was absolutely useless. Um, the, for sometimes that hard tire doesn't actually work in Bahrain, and sometimes it does. Um, but I think um, going back to the question in in that sense, that the medium was just yeah, it just didn't seem to work around Bahrain for some reason. It was it was a similar level of deg to what the CE one was, so the, to the hard tire. Um, but the hard was just quicker, so it made no sense to run the medium because you would literally just be offset on pace with no benefit in performance in terms of degradation or life. So that's why none of the teams ran it, just because it didn't actually offer anything from a strategic point. And then again, the C3, which was a soft, um, wasn't, again, that offset. Like All the degradations were all within kind of 0.05, 0.04 of each other. There wasn't like a, a soft tire which was degrading at 0.3 seconds a lap and a hard tire which was 0.05. They were all kind of C3 soft was... Point two, the C one was point one seven kind of thing, and it, so they're they all very much a muchness in that sense, which um, meant. But often you get a kind of case where the medium and harder run in the race because the soft degrades so much. Where this one, the medium just didn't bring anything in terms of performance into any aspects. It didn't bring any life, didn't bring any degradation, and it didn't bring any pace either. Ouch! <laughs> and so, and that, so that's ouch to Pirelli, is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, can I just ask a quick follow up? Is it possible that that's just down to like where the sweet spot of that particular tire is? Yeah, there's there's a good chance of that. Um, like I said, the Bahrain's a very abrasive track surface, which often interacts with the tires in a very different way to what like where we get to Saudi. I know that's not the the C one isn't coming to Saudi, but Saudi, which is a very smooth surface, totally different type of track. This is where you'll see sometimes where you kind of bring the same compound works in some places and doesn't work in some others where you look at the track layouts and think, oh, that's a very similar track. Why is it working different here? But actually the the track abrasion just interacts with that kind of rubber much differently and just causes a totally different effect. So, uh, Matt, this would be a good opportunity to settle the argument you and Chris were having on Sunday's show about sure. front limited tyres and uh, and tracks and rear limited tracks. So uh, Bahrain is a, a rear limited track because there's lots of heavy braking and then uh, you, you're sort of kind of stopped. Is it like point and squirt? Stopped and then you're getting on the power and that's wearing the back. So if you have like long radius corners like Barcelona turn three up the hill, is that a front? Where's the fronts a little bit more? So what would you say, without giving it away, Matt, what would you say on the calendar? Are there more front limited tracks or more? rear limited tracks where would you tend to want your car to be stronger are you trying to now go through all the tracks in your mind and count them up <laughs> does it feel like a pretty even split we're asking you mike for sure not matt oh is that me oh, yeah, sorry yeah. i thought you're asking um matt. no no matt um, had an argument with chris about it um yeah so i think based on my experience the majority of the tracks and is only just but is more rear, rear limited than front limited um circuits the, there's also a different aspect that in terms of how the tires work as well, that you can run the front tires down to 100% worn and you'll still get some performance out of them, whereas the rears will only wear to like 60, 70% per go. So often, even uh -huh. if it is kind of a track, say like a, a Silverstone, which you could potentially class as front limited, you're probably still maybe actually tire limited on the rear, not the front. 
Ah, oh, that's interesting, actually. So that's that's actually yeah in between what Chris and uh, Chris and Matt said. So yeah, that's that's really interesting, Matt. Yeah, the thing actually that that really um, I was most disagreeable with was he said it because it was just about which set of tires went off. But as Mike correctly pointed out, um, and you know. I just say this going along because I had already learned this from other experts. It, it's more about the corner and the energy that you're putting into the fronts versus the rears rather than uh, which, which set one? of tires goes off yeah. in the race. Chris was basing his on, oh, well, the rears usually go off first, so they're all rear limited. And that's not technically correct. Yeah, the, the 100% you, you're spot on there. Yeah, I'd say it's probably a 60-40 split, maybe rear to, to front. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of tracks where the front front corners are the most energy um, hitting um, tires. Okay, so you're giving up performance in the front if it's front limited as the as the stint goes on, but you're not necessarily falling away in the same way that you would uh, with the rears going off. And so going into Jeddah, and there's those those long sweepers uh, through the through the corridor of horror. I I'm I'm so like. I'm dreading going back there because the first race, I think it feels incredibly lucky that there wasn't a crash, a high speed crash with people coming around in the blind corners. So I will once again be holding my breath for all the competitive sessions. But is that more front limited then because uh, because of those those sweeping left, right? And will that change which cars deal with it well? Yeah, it'll definitely be more front limited. Yeah, this one. Um, and just to give you a bit of ease um they've actually changed quite a lot of the um walls uh, oh, to, to, to remove some of the blind um they've, i think they've done Thank quite a lot goodness. of work this year that was um, horrible do, um but yeah it's um yeah definitely a lot, a lot of the sweeping ones but jedo in general is not really a high energy circuit at all so i, d- I don't think it's going to be ah, okay, because good. it's so high speed it, it's almost like the cars are on rails they don't it's the ones where you you kind of got your your silverstone um like maggots beckett's um yeah, Barcelona turn three, which is a long kind of prolonged kind of energy, which builds it in the ones. Whereas the, with Saudi, they're so switch back and kind of like, you know, actually put it in for th- that long a time. So while you might get a high peak of it, it's not the sustained one. It's that sustained energy, which really kind of damages the tire in that respect. So, yeah. So as a strategist, are you going to, you're going to bolt off on your, your softest set of tires to get off the line? change onto the hards and, and that's it probably would expect a maybe a one-stop i'd very much expect it to be a one-stop yeah oh then they haven't achieved their aim of an interesting one to two stop race but there's a few tracks aren't there that are super smooth like that with nowhere obviously sochi's yeah. not on the calendar anymore but there are those tracks where the tires just can't come into it because the surface isn't abrasive enough so but i guess is that there's nothing nothing we can do about that matt uh, no and i think not to speak for Mike, it, it's if I'm right, it's not just the abrasiveness of the circuit, but you're also saying it's the amount of energy that the tires have to absorb through the turns. Yeah, yeah, correct. So, yeah, so it's it's a combination of the two. So like, yeah, you'll get some circuits where uh, yeah, smooth and it's very much a low energy circuit where the tires absorb. So that kind of basically means that touch. So Baku, for example, is one of like you've got a lot of kind of. Um, 90 degree corners in that but you haven't got any of the ones where you're really leaning on that tire mm. for a long period of time so you've got that combination of a, a smooth surface with no real high energy kind of kind of corners in there so that's another one where you'll see a lot of cars struggling to get the tires work especially the harder compound uh, yeah so 
I'm looking at the tire choice for Jetta. It's C2, 3, and 4. It's, I've heard this criticism off Pirelli before. Are they being too conservative with tracks like this Give, and, and the compounds they're bringing? Or is there a reason they're not going like 2, 3, 5 or you know, 3, 4, 5 to try and make that second stop happen despite the nature of the circuit? You see, it's it's quite a difficult one actually with the three compounds. I know they they brought in like kind of three compound tries to try and add this kind of um, strategic um, kind um, options. But actually, what you do if you say you brought a C two, C three, C five, probably what you'll find is everyone qualifies on the C five, and then it just won't be used, and everyone mm. then just uses the C three and C two. Same potentially if it's C three, C four, C five, but it, it's okay, that case that. <laughs> Is for the the hard the softer compound just isn't touched okay. for the race because there's just that too big a gap. So you and especially now where everyone gets a free tire choice for um, people. And then if you go too far the other way, then no one touches the hard compound and everyone just sticks on the softer medium. And it's just they're actually potentially adding with adding this C one in there, they're actually might be starting to open up in some circuits that chance where actually we've got three compounds now which are, allows that bit of um strategic variability and adds that extra stop in there um and i think you're seeing actually now that there are more circuits the last couple of years especially with the new cars and then i think the year before there are actually now more tracks now where a two-stop is starting to become a a reasonable strategy in most races um even within the midfield um so i I think they're getting close to the aim you're just you're never going to achieve it everywhere it's it's, i just don't think it is ever going to happen everywhere but you'll get more than more than one stop at some places so i'm often criticized for cutting matt off when he's getting too deep into tire talk and people yelled at me and said they wanted to hear it more that was about 25 minutes of matt talking to a real f1 strategist about tires and i stood here even though i didn't understand a single word of it so let's not have that criticism again but i do want to get onto some more racy racy type things in fact i think a good question here from uh, mike holler who asks you, I'd like to hear from you, Mike, uh, your reaction to Russell asking to pass Hamilton and the ambition of the young drivers. We said on our race review on Sunday, we reckon that Russell knew his tyres were going and he was kind of, it was a bit of a cheeky ask. So how do you deal with uh, drivers trying to do that? Hey, I've got more pace. Yeah, I mean, they're always going to try it. And I think it's, it's that scenario where... When they raise it, you look at it. But I mean, the team as well have got so much information on what his tires are doing, so they'll they'll know if his tires are going. They they know yeah. what his temperatures are. They know what the situation is around him as well. So you kind of you you basically go it. Barring for a start, it's a track which you can overtake, and you can kind of generally generally follow. Even though this weekend actually it looked that following wasn't as easy as it has been, but it's um it's a. It, it's one of those ones where the driver's always going to say it. If he's behind his teammate, he's always going to try and say it. But you kind of, I've been in those situations before where you we actually do switch them around. And actually, the, the only reason they're actually within the teammates because they're in the DRS. And then as soon as they get ahead of the teammate, the and same. the teammate gets yeah. the DRS, and it's just the same situation <laughs> the other way around. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's what they do. I was thinking shades <laughs> of Rosberg and Hamilton in Malaysia where finally Ross Braun had to come on and say, okay, you two cut it out. We Neither of you are going to get to the end of the race if you just keep on passing each other in DRS zones. Yeah. But if you don't mind, you mentioned that it was harder to follow, you thought, for teams. 
this year? Are 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 the teams already eroding this regulation set that led to such good racing last season? I mean, I can't I can't say yes or no in in the sense I don't, I haven't looked at like the actual numbers, but it's kind of the impression, and it wouldn't surprise me. But they're starting to add new parts to the car, which are starting to remove some of that aspects which obviously and as soon as you increase performance and like aero performance which have to i mean what was it barring testing this year was about three seconds quicker than barring testing last year so as you're adding that kind of aerodynamic performance you're going to create more downwash off the car which is going to start having that effect on on following cars so it, no matter what they do in the regs you, you're always going to create something in there which um yeah and the teams are going to do everything for they can do for performance they they, if if they're allowed to do it, they probably F one won't have picked up probably on every single aspect of it, which um doesn't create a negative effect. And then mm. they'll probably look at it and say, "Well, right, okay, right, we need to close this out loophole. We close this here, or not loophole, but just kind of stop area as well. You yeah. can't develop in this area." But yeah, I, I'm saying that yeah, I definitely it looked more difficult than I've seen in previous years for for Bahrain especially. Um, and it's also that situation as well. I think. Because we saw in qualifying a spread of the cars of about, what was it, one and a half seconds, 1.6 seconds, the full 20 cars or something, which everyone obviously went, fantastic, this is going to be run. Actually, though, yeah. when you have so many cars close together, you're just going to fall in a trench because they've not got the overtaking delta to actually be able to pass. So you actually start bringing in that artificial overtaking over the DRS, and then you get that kind of swapping back and forth and that, and or just not passing and running in a train. So actually sometimes having a lot of cars close performance isn't great for racing you you've got an aerodynamic background as well michael have i misremembered that i have indeed uh, mm. yeah i mean i wouldn't i did an aeronautical engineering uh, degree but um in terms of my aerodynamics mm. um knowledge you have to i wouldn't ever put myself in the same ballpark right 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 so but you but you do have a kind of baseline knowledge of of aerodynamics and so so you won't answer this question honestly but i always think that there's some kind of cartel of aerodynamicists that have just overtaken formula one because is it too simplistic when f1 fans go well just rip the wings off you know take away this aero um but i don't think f1 at its core would ever do that just from a from a character point of view it likes having the aero it likes having that lap time yeah 100 percent. i think that's one of the things which makes f1 what it is i mean people talking about how new he designs his cars and like the absolute mm. magical job he does with like most of his cars he's ever produced and everyone wants to like aspire to doing that and what else we can do and how, how we and you look at the performance considering the speed of these cars now not just with the engines but I mean, just think if they were the weight of they were 20 years ago and they had this kind of performance on it, then Christ, how fast they'd be. But... Why, don't we just, why don't they just do that then? <laughs> Go on, Matt. It would be a utopia if we could get back down to around 700 kilograms and a shorter car with the engine performance and the aerodynamic performance we have now. Yeah. But it, just yeah, really doesn't it, it, seem like they can. Yeah, well, that, um, yeah, hundred percent. They're not going to go to a shorter car because obviously all the arrows trying on ground effect now. So obviously that longer car helps generate that. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I was looking the other week. I won't say where I was, but I was at a factory and they had some of their historic cars out compared to the modern cars. And yeah, it's it's quite a 
quite a shock when you see them next to each other. Yeah, and when you if you look at the like old footage of old races and you see those cars, they they're dancing around, and the tracks look huge. I mean, even just go and look back to the Groove Tire era and Hamilton fighting Raikkonen around Spa. And and it really does look like little toy cars <laughs> flying around, whereas now they're they're these massive machines. But I don't think but, it's going to get reversed. No, I mean, I'm hoping like obviously 2026 is the next kind of regs change they're going to do. So I'm, hopefully with the new the new PU rules coming in, that saves a bit of weight in that mm. respect, and they hopefully they can just start dropping that weight limit because that's I think that's the next thing they need to do is right. How can we get this back down? Like, like I said, if we can get it down to 700 kilos again or 750 or something like that just it just helps just anything but instead of it creeping up every year by another five kilos three kilos and it just keeps creeping up and so it would be nice to kind of try and get it back down but like you said i mean that touches on that kind of how big the cars are now it's it's especially when we're going to a lot of street circuits now i mean monaco's obviously the original but the cars are just too big for monaco now um yeah. not that you get overtaken there anyway but it's just you look at the size of them now it's it's ridiculous but we're going to more and more street circuits and you kind of think, well, mm. it's kind of, how is this going to be good for the racing? It's good for the spectacle, but for the racing itself, I'm not convinced. Well, Matt, I don't know about you. I felt attacked when he started saying, oh, it's creeping up three kilos here, three kilos there. I'm like, hey, oh, he's talking about the cars. Okay. Yeah, they were supposed to lose two kilos. And then the teams decided uh, as a majority that they'd rather not have to lose that weight uh, just for this season, as I recall. But Here's something that I just randomly thought of, and I'll interject into the show for no particular purpose. Do it. We're talking about this weight increase, and it suddenly occurred to me that that's a weight increase where we've dropped 40 or 50 kilograms of fuel the cars need to get through a race. So it's not just the car. The cars are actually, it's that plus about another 40 kilograms that they've really gained from like, you know, when we still think of F1 as being a quote unquote lighter formula. Yeah. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And actually, as well, the fuel is starting to creep back up again because they removed the hundred and ten limit at the beginning of last season. So now it's they're not even limited to that. So, well, it's not significantly increased, but you now can have if you need one hundred twelve, one hundred thirteen kilos, they're going to be running out at the beginning of the race. And would I be wrong in assuming that's because of the increased ethanol content and the reduced calorific content of the fuel? believe so yeah I, I think that combined with again the cars being heavier just means it requires a bit more to to shift them yeah to get so. it around yeah <laughs> all right are we are we doing chemistry lessons still who, who do you think you are pat well, who, who was doing the simmons pat simmons is that you trying to talk about ethanol and compounds of fuel look when one free electron meets no. a <laughs> and they love each other very, very much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fuels are born. Uh, right. I want to uh, go to Mike interjecting on my tweets and telling me I'm wrong. It was really interesting, actually. I've been banging on that Aston Martin's performance, if they were to go up into the top three, would be the best mid-regulation off-season performance ever. So obviously when there's a big regulation change, it's a good chance to shuffle the deck. But normally that deck stays uh, pretty settled and assuming big assumption that aston martin can stay third as the third fastest car all season i said that's the that's the best off-season mid-reg performance ever you disagree yes go yeah. on then go on then come at me what what what, what teams have been able to leapfrog mid-regulation um well i'm obviously i'll go to one which i replied with on the on the tweets here is and bias obviously i have a slight bit of bias behind <laughs> it but the the 2012 to 2013 Mercedes for me is 
I, I was obviously working there at the time, but there was no regulation change for, between those two seasons. Um, the only thing which kind of slightly changed was obviously tyres tires changed off a little bit, and but there was no major changes because we were going to 2014 to the brand new yeah. rules. And obviously Mercedes at the end of 2012 were struggling, just hung on to P6 in the constructors in that very last race, almost lost it to Force India in that last one there um, to be P7, but just hung on to P6. And then obviously went to 2013, Hamilton came aboard and three race wins and P2 in the constructors. So obviously behind a very dominant Red Bull. But in my eyes, that that was a greater achievement than than what we saw actually into 2014 because the 2014 was such a long-term project, yeah, yeah. whereas 2013 was a correction of, obviously correction of the things they'd made wrong in 2012, but they obviously still got a jump on a lot of the teams who'd already got it right and and got that performance improvement. So, so was it was it all Lewis? It was, wasn't it? It was all Lewis Hamilton that made no. What what was what was the thing that kind of clicked into place then to, to let you go? Because if I remember twenty thirteen correctly, Mercedes came out of the blocks and they were out qualifying the whole grid by about a second, and then falling back for a lot. And then I think it was the first race win not Monaco where Vettel was complaining about the silver bus parked at the front. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, they won at yeah, won at Monaco, which basically qualified on pole and yeah, and then, then you just couldn't do anything. literally just drove drove like a Sunday drive, yeah, because <laughs> you just couldn't overtake, yeah. But it was all part of the plan on that one. But I mean the other wins were Hungary and Silver yeah, Silverstone. And obviously Silverstone that year was the tire exploding year, but oh, we still yeah. actually I forgot um, that Mercedes won that. I was there for that. That was that was insane. Didn't you did have a blowout though? Hamilton had we a blowout. Did have a blowout, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I, and they still finished I think he still came back and finished on the podium, I can't remember exactly yeah. because Nico won the race, but um, yeah, yeah, I can't remember where Lewis, but he came back quite well into it, considering he had the tire blowout, um, and then won at Hungary as well, which is obviously again another one which he can't overtake, so qualifying is quite um, oh, quite good. But I forgot, I can blame you for this, right? So that season, right? I um uh, always gamble responsibly when the fun stops stops, but. I had won £90 from betting on tennis. I think it was Wimbledon. And then so I had £90 in my betting account. And because you all looked so strong in qualifying and just looked like you had the fastest car, I piled it all on Hamilton to win the championship. And then the tyre regulations changed and Vettel won, I think, every single race after that. Yeah, so after after the shutdown, yeah, Red Bull won every race, and I think <laughs> Vettel won nine out of the ten or something like that. It was oh. really, yeah, ridiculous in in that sense. But I mean, that even fooled us because we obviously won in Hungary and thought, yeah, there was actually an air of confidence in the team. Well, well, we've got a chance here. We've really got a chance to kind of push on, and then <laughs> and then they yeah, we just the didn't quite get ah. on top of the 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 changes to the tires, um, the tire rules. Um, what what um, Red Bull did, but. Yeah, but again, it's still going from 12 to 13. Yeah, obviously that qualifying pace was absolutely fantastic, but still there were some races which were <laughs> bad, and but obviously still won some races and again, got a number of podiums in mm. there. And it was, yeah, just a, it was a good season in, in terms of getting getting on top of that. Okay, so last nosy thing then, since we've you drifted us back to that, that cutoff point between the hybrid era and pre-hybrid era. So 2013 was the last set of cars without the the hybrid you just there was Kurs, i think wasn't there in 2011 and there was some energy recovery but not the out and out hybrid so did you guys know going into 2014 that you had absolutely nailed it or was it was it not until race one um i think there was a quiet confidence that it was gonna go quite well um 
obviously you didn't know where everyone else stood mm. and that was the thing you didn't know because it wasn't obviously just the just the pu there was, a, there was obviously the other other side of things but from everything which was in the team they were quite yeah quite confident on what what was going to happen um and i think one of the biggest indicators in terms of a pu side was coming was um i believe i think it was williams were going from renault to mercedes engines or something i think williams were renault in 2013 and then yeah, going to Mercedes in 2014. I think that was the case or something. And obviously they got some of the information which of what like the Mercedes engine was planning to start mm. trying to plan their car for next year. And the Renault guy saw it and went, no, this, these numbers are, can't be right. They're, they're not right <laughs> kind of thing, um, which obviously proved straight away, which, yeah, it was yeah. right. And yeah, they were kind of, and then you heard like all the stories of kind of winter testing in, in, in 2014. But, like Red Bull weren't literally didn't get their engines until like a day before testing oh. and start fired up and all the issues there. Whereas Merck had the the virtual track test to run the the PU and that that was running in December already, so they were quite quietly confident. But yeah, it was it was <laughs> going to do a good job. Sorry, you said fired up and Renault 2014 engine in the same sentence, and it just kind of made me laugh. Uh, Mike, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. This gives us the kind of insight we couldn't dream of. If I can do a a quick fire and set of questions here from our our listeners and see if you've got any kind of quick answers to them. Um, Right. Simon has asked, have you or any of the teams you've worked with ever looked at the data, seen that the data tells you to go a certain way, but just something in your gut said to go a different way? And and then obviously, like, how did that go? So just in general terms, how often do you, I, I'm assuming you don't slavishly go to the data. You also, you know, oh, well, that didn't work so well last time we did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously quick fire in that sense. Yeah. Especially as a strategist, you can't just go with the data. You you need to have a little bit of kind of a experience cut instinct on certain aspects of it and sometimes yeah you'll you'll see something and go mm, i'm not confident with that yeah. and you, you will go a different direction sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and then you, you learn from it and that's kind of you go okay but generally that gut instinct is is pretty strong i bet it's quite strong during the like the snap calls for safety cars for example that must be you know that's something where you've seen the teams have different philosophies mercedes seem to kind of they err on the side of uh, let's just let the laps go around and see what everyone else is doing and then you have teams like like red bull who seem much more aggressive and proactive in that regard yeah uh, and i think one the biggest one example for me is the hungry call in 2020 where we pitted under the formation lap to, to get off oh, the wet. Yeah. So, yeah. That was that was a, I mean, the slight backstory for that one. I wasn't actually at that race. I was back in the factory, um, <laughs> and then um, okay, and because I just broken my my thumb, um, and it's um, yeah, and I literally came up because I was a bit disconnected being there, and I thought, why are we on the why are we on these tires? And as they as they kind of say, you see the TV, and I just went on the radio and was just like we need to box, we need to get off these, let's go do it. And again, it was that kind of gut instinct. It was like, yeah, once I called it, I was like, and then that kind of panic filled up going, oh, geez, what have I just done? <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> phoned from home to to, 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 to to change the course of an F1 race. And I can set, set us up what was happening with that because I got confused. There was one race where didn't Lewis Hamilton end up on the grid completely by himself? It's not that one, so that's, is it? So that was the year later. Ah, right. Yeah. It, where it was, again, it was something similar, like everyone was on... It was um yeah, everyone was on wet tires. It just rained before the race in um in Hungary. Same with Hungary again and mm. then yeah. This one was 
this one was actually a it started under the safety car and then restarted and then it was one of those ones where you go to a standing start after a, a red flag i think it was yeah. and then yeah everyone piled into the pits which you're allowed to do and lewis didn't yeah mm-hmm. and ended up there and I, I, it's quite amazing that and the, and there must be some trust there as well that you you know you're not involved all weekend you see something on tv and phone up and someone trackside has got to decide whether you've been at home paying full attention or whether you know you're on the old uh, mother <laughs> on the mother's ruin are you on the gin they don't know do they <laughs> yeah but yeah. Uh, it's, ho- hopefully it's just that case of i'd, I'd built up enough trust but they, they just but yeah i mean i know we got penalized for it but that was a that was an annoying penalty as that but still gained uh, some points still got some points within that season which were <laughs> very hard to come by there was much screaming at the television in my household when that happened. We we were all like, e- "Yes, I'm going to yeah. go and uh, look that up." And we agree that with now. you about that. That, that so, was so, the, uh, radio call during a so hungry 2020. Yeah. So I'm going to go and look up the start of that race now and watch it in the context of that. Pete Shilcock asks, "Have you ever made defensive strategic decisions and then realised you should have been more offensive and you would have gained several?" places i know it's the benefit of hindsight and he's sure the simple answer is yes but if you have any examples that come to mind that would be that would be appreciated says peter i mean yeah it's, it's difficult to think of examples oh, i know it yeah, is yeah it's, it's like just there's so many ones that kind of blend into it i mean often i think in cases obviously when you're that maybe a lead in that kind of group um and you obviously want to protect against the undercut so you kind of seek someone pit you protect against it and then two laps later, there's a safety car and you lose out like kind of four places because of that. And I mean, it's not really been the, the offensive. You're just doing what you should do because if you don't cover against the undercut, then then you're going to look a fool and you haven't done your job properly. And you can, you can never account for when when a safety car is coming out. So I'd, I'd say in that sense, but yeah, it's it's hard to pinpoint, yeah. pinpoint an exact, exact example does. Definitely times where I probably will have done it, but it's just, yeah. It's, well, it's me and Matt were talking about the undercut and overcut uh, earlier. So, like, the classic scenario that he's painted there is, you know, you defend against the undercut, and if someone ahead of you is defending against the undercut, you may as well, in lots of situations, then go long, hope a safety car comes out, and then you essentially get a cheap, uh, a cheap pit stop. But, Matt, we were talking about the differences between the over and undercut and undercut strategies this season. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to take it back to Mercedes versus Aston, we saw Alonso with an overcut work on Hamilton, and then I think we saw Stroll with an undercut work on Russell. Um, and how do you as a strategist evaluate, like, is there a general uh, 70% of a time an undercut beats an overcut, or is it really just contextual based on the actual cars that you're racing at that moment at that specific track? Yeah, so it's it's a bit of, bit of both of those, really. So you obviously have your tyre curves going into a race, so you generally know what point you are on that degradation curve. So you know if you go to a new tyre, you're going to be a second of a lap faster. Um, and then you've got to remember, right, what stage of the tyre curve is if is your opponent on, if they're doing it. So, if, for example, Alonso, once he's on a bit younger tyres, he's, he's still up. So you still think, right, Going to a new set of tyres, I still should be half a second faster in. But then that's not taking into account car performance. So if he has a car performance advantage on you there, you've got to try and take that into it. So it's that difficult one there, but he probably does the opposite in that respect. For if they if Mercedes don't pit, he pits and gets the undercut. If they pit, 
he then just has to put in as much as he can and then try and get the overcut. So it's um it's it's very much down to that kind of tire tire trace you're going to and what the car performance is of the cars you're fighting. Oh Mike, thank you so much. I mean today I really enjoyed all the non tire conversation we had um and a delve back into the past was an unexpected delight i do hope you'll come and join us throughout the course of the season you can follow mike at mike caulfield or f1 on twitter is that where you where you like to hang out you haven't got a tiktok that you'd like to promote you, you no. sure no okay and not an instagram no. which is just you on the beaches no okay no, in that- in instagram's private so okay. oh well, there you go so do go and follow mike caulfield by following the links in the show notes below thank you so much for your time of course follow matt at mattpt 55 and you can follow me as well if you'd like at spanners ready on twitter or richard ready on facebook we'll be back soon but wherever we see you next work hard be kind and have fun this was missed apex podcast <laughs>